What questions does living through a pandemic invite us to ask as people of faith? What difference does it make that all are made in the image of God? How does faith expand the landscape in which we can live? Why is it more important to be forgiven than to succeed? What new things of faith are stirring in the body of Christ at this time? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Lord Williams of Oystermouth. Rowan Williams, as he's better known, is Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and was previously Archbishop of Canterbury from 2002 to 2012. And our question today is, what does being human look like in a time of pandemic? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Rowan Williams, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much indeed. Rowan, you're joining us from Cambridge, where you first studied theology as an undergraduate. Since then, you've taught, you've preached and written as a lecturer, as a professor, as a priest, a bishop and an archbishop. Now you're back in Cambridge as Master of Magdalen College. What have you appreciated about that new season for you as a theologian? As a theologian, I think having having space really to explore what I want to explore, what I feel I need to explore, rather than being what somebody once called a kind of taxi rank. You know, you, you wait there until somebody asks, asks you an interesting question. And as Archbishop, in, inevitably, a good deal of what you do theologically is is reactive, and quite rightly so. People ask questions, people want you to think out loud for them, with them, about pressing issues. So it's been good in the last few years just to have a chance to scroll back a bit to things that interested me and engaged me earlier on in my career as a, as a theologian, and try and take them a bit further and a bit deeper. Hence the, the book on Christology, hence um, the thing on theology and language, and the book on tragedy. Now, in the last few months, our lives have changed hugely due to the coronavirus pandemic. You've said, I think, that the pandemic has triggered a historical spiritual moment. So I just want to explore with you the impact of how we do theology, therefore, in the light of that uh, today. Mm. One of the things that struck me in reading your work over the years is that you're as concerned to ensure that the questions are rightly framed as with any responses that we might produce. Mm. So I guess my first question for you today is a broad one, which is, what questions do you think this time of pandemic is inviting us to ask of our God, our faith, and ourselves. Hmm. Well, one thing I've said to some people is that it's prompted the question for a lot of people, what actually do we value? What kind of persons do we want to be? Because the, the question about whether we care more about getting the economy started again or keeping the population safe, although it's a rather crude question, does bring to light, doesn't it, this kind of sense, what actually are we investing our effort in? Are we investing our effort in creating a situation where people feel secure, feel cared for, both medically and socially? Or are we concerned to reset the clock and just go back and start as before? So that's one significant question, I think. The second thing that comes from that is, if this is a time when it's possible to change, to reset some of the coordinates, well, what are our resources? Where do we look? And it is very interesting that I think the last statistic I saw suggested that something like a quarter of the population of this country had been tuning into some sort of religious celebration or religious meditation in the last few weeks, as if people know that if they are resetting, 
as I put it, resetting the coordinates, they're going to need a few bits of guidance and a few bits of imaginative input to, to get them going. And I think perhaps the third thing I'd pick up there is this deepened awareness of our dependence on all sorts of very, very prosaic, very everyday skills and commitments. We're used to talking about low-skilled workers, meaning by that people like carers and nurses and all the rest of it, for that matter, refuse connectors. And suddenly, we realise absolutely nothing would be possible without these prosaic jobs. So should we be thinking about what we value and what we reward in work as well? So those are some of the things which seem to me to be spiritual, imaginative questions, questions about the kind of humanity we think we inhabit and we want to nourish. Let's look at those, if we may, and in particular, that question of what we value Mm. and this apparent dichotomy between a a restarted economy and a safe population. Mm. Let's just go a little bit further. What are the theological issues? And is there a theological set of resources that means there isn't a dichotomy between those two or or that can help us kind of calibrate between those two places? I'd want to push backwards, I think, towards some questions that have been around in different ways over the last 10 years. What's our economy for? Of course, you know, economic health is a good thing, but how do we define economic health? Economic growth is a good thing, but what's it growth into? In recent years, I've, I've had a certain amount to do with people who've been hammering out ideas of what we might mean by sustainable prosperity. In other words, the economy of a country is there to give certain basic dignities, securities, and so forth to a population of people whose human dignity needs to be honoured rather than to the acquisitive will of certain individuals. So the theological issue and the theological resource, I think, are, are really about how we imagine the purpose of wealth, how we imagine the necessary limits to growth in a world where our fundamental responsibility is the nourishment of one another's human dignity in the image of God. Now, quite clearly, a totally growth-oriented, infinite growth spiral-oriented model of the economy isn't going to do anything very much to guarantee human dignity for those who fall off the edge, who, who lose the race. So if you're looking for a sustainable pattern of human life, you've got to think of something that does work harder to guarantee, to anchor basic well-being, basic dignity. And I think we have quite a lot to say about that because of our belief in the divine image in human beings, because of our belief that fundamentally, a point I keep coming back to fundamentally in the New Testament, the model of human society put before us in the body of Christ is one where anyone's issue is everyone's issue. Anyone's poverty is everyone's poverty. What are the ways in which that classic doctrine of human dignity and the image of God and the way that that finds its expression in the New Testament where you have the body of Christ, where all are of equal value. What are some of the more compelling ways that you've found to articulate that imaginatively in today's culture? Hmm. One thing, I suppose, is trying to make sure that our attention is drawn again and again to precisely those people we might not expect to be the heroes or the paragons of a society, to underline the seriousness, the dignity of those who may not seem to contribute in the dramatic or life-changing way we fantasize about. And that also, I think, means, well, let's just put it in this context. One of my other jobs is to be the, um, the chair of the trustees of Christian Aid. And so our work in Christian Aid is very much to do with how in the aid and development world, 
we learn to be receivers as well as givers. That is to say, of the people we work with, look, they have a contribution to make. We're not just rich Westerners handing out Christmas presents indiscriminately or throwing money at problems. We are actually seeking to liberate the capacity of the people we work with so that not only will they make a difference to themselves, they'll make a difference to us. So the practical side of serving human dignity and human mutuality, which is equally important, is that business of drawing attention to underlining perhaps the the less expected, the less likely people you might look to for, for receiving things from, to underline, as I like to put it, the dignity of being a giver for people. And I think that you know, that's very much what we're reading in the pages of the New Testament. But again, the whole model of the body of Christ depends on, I think, Paul saying, you are called into this community and endowed with liberty by Christ so that you will be able to give of your fullest into the fullness of your neighbour. You've talked about the second area, which was around the apparent desire or willingness of people to give attention to the question of the need to reset coordinates or change and that therefore in order to do that there was a level of external resource of external guidance mm. that would be appropriate mm. what's especially new about that is it a is it a sense that some of the existing maps haven't been terribly good or just haven't gone far enough and and if so what is it that's particularly compelling or distinctive about the christian map or set of resources that we might if you like give particular attention to mm. In one sense, of course, there is nothing particularly new about this situation. There's always been in modernity that, that sort of shortfall in spiritual and imaginative resource. There's always been the possibility of turning to it. But I think people have become perhaps rather more conscious of the fact that they haven't got a big picture in which to put things, that the individualist assumptions of the last, the last century or so haven't actually served us very well. But where then do you look? Now, traditional religion doesn't always look very credible because it's it's associated in people's minds with repression or irrationality or any number of other things. It's associated really with being less rather than more human. So we've got a little bit of a job to do there to, to demonstrate that that's completely the wrong way round. So there is that awareness that a big picture has been lacking. And a big picture doesn't mean a grand explanatory theory. It means a landscape to live in that's worth living in, that's full of beautiful, challenging, unexpected perspectives that enlarge you. And that, you know, that is the world of faith, as far as I can see. That's the world of faith. And in Christian faith very particularly, I'd say, one of the, the central things that we are told is that it is more important to be forgiven than to succeed. Now, we live in a world which is not particularly good at forgiveness, which is very obsessed about success. We live in a world of you know, public personalities who are, it seems, constitutionally incapable of saying, sorry, I got that wrong, or maybe I've got something to learn here. And you know, the Christian gospel says, one of the ways in which you will most effectively witness to life, hope, and joy is to say, I've got that wrong and it wasn't the end of the world, because there's more than myself to trust. And it's, it's a very, very simple thing, but it does seem to me that that is one of the most fundamental tenets of our faith. Forget about the success and the comfort of the ego. Just accept you are a person growing in community, making judgments which necessarily are sometimes good and sometimes bad. And what matters is not that you get it right, 
but that there is both a judging and a merciful accompanier living with you, in you, moving you on into renewal, if you can be honest about that dependence, if you can be humble. It's an unfashionable and difficult word, but you know, humility is the beginning and end of it all, the humility of realism. So I think Christian faith simultaneously says human beings are more wonderful than you could possibly imagine in the eyes of their maker, and human beings are more capable of making a mess of things than you could possibly imagine. Both of those things are true. Get used to it. It's all right. <laughs> Don't panic, because it's not up to you. It's up to your maker and redeemer and lover. That's a, a beautiful landscape, as you say, in which to live where there is greater potential because we might be more wonderful, but also greater realism. It, it struck me in this pandemic time that those of us who are keeping track of leadership theories and practicalities is that leaders are being told in this season, be honest about what you've got wrong. Yes. Uh, it seems to yes. me there's something very appropriate that the Christian faith can speak into for exactly that reason, that we can be humble and say that we didn't get it right, but but we're not trusting in ourselves, thank goodness. That's right. And as I said, if we want to talk credibly about God, very often the way we most effectively do it is by that sort of honesty. So don't, don't look at me and all the things I get wrong. Look at the one who enables me to see that I've got things wrong and not, not to collapse. <laughs> Can I take that further? What are those things that might feed that humility? If you say that that's part of the wonderful landscape that Christian faith offers in this and every season, what are those things that we might practice for ourselves, but also commend to others as a as a joy rather than a sort of cul-de-sac? Hmm. Well, it's um, difficult to give an entire program of <laughs> how, to, how to do this, isn't it? But well, here's another perspective on our present situation. I'd say that we're discovering in this time of lockdown rather more of our, hmm, our need for a natural order, a world around us. We're discovering our need for other bodies and feeling that very acutely when we can't be in touch with other bodies. We've reconnected, some of us anyway, with, with a natural world that's a bit less polluted and a bit less crowded than it used to be. Now, these, these are small things, but the practice of being in touch with the world around, whether it's as simple a thing as doing a bit of gardening or a bit of cookery, just reminds you, you're not simply a raging, willing ego, unhappily allied to a lump of meat. You are a body thinking, feeling within the whole world, which God has made you part of. Now, to sense being part of, to sense that element of responsiveness to the environment we're in seems to me a basic discipline of growing up as a human being. And in a time like this, we do have some opportunity to do a bit of that. Now, I realise that can be well idealistic for those who are living in crowded, stressed, and barely manageable domestic situations. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to gloss over that. But for those of us who, who have got some capacity, there is an opening there. And if there are circumstances where people don't find that available to them and possible for them, well, we have a question to ask, well, why is that? Why are people stuck in impossible domestic situations, impossible situations of social privation with inadequate childcare, inadequate housing? You know, And use our own sense of the privilege of being in touch with the world around as a bit of a stimulus to say, well, so why can't, why can't we do this for more people? But I think it is, it is as basic as that. I, if I can do an awful name drop, I was uh, doing a, an event with Marilyn Robinson, the novelist in the United States, a couple of years ago. You can, yeah. One of my great heroines. 
And um, somebody asked us a, a, a similar question, really, about what the basics were. And uh, it was an extraordinary moment, but we sort of looked at each other and we said almost together, gardening and cooking, <laughs> you know, at the beginnings of the spiritual life. So, uh, both, both are there. You said it's more important to be forgiven than to succeed. Hmm. Why is that? Do you feel so countercultural? And yet, why does it kind of get to the heart of this landscape of Christian faith? Hmm. Well, we were all of us kind of socialized into a world where the default setting is other people are likely to be out to undermine me, and their success and comfort is probably going to be something that threatens mine. And in one way or another, we internalize an awful lot of that from quite early on, which is a sobering thought. It means that in so many of our relationships with others, let alone our professional relationships, there's that undertow of anxiety, of edginess. And at its worst, of course, that's one of the great drivers of mental ill health and all the struggles and challenges that come with that. So anything at all that says you don't have to regard everything around you as a threat because you don't have to be on top of every situation. It's all right not to be in control. That can be heard as a liberation. And I think that's, in a way, how I read some of the exorcism stories in the Gospels. You know, that Jesus is saying to people who are utterly, psychotically trapped in their own, their own world, look, open the doors of that world. Get rid of that diabolical presence which drives you to be on top of everything and rejoin the human race. There's something in at least some of those exorcism stories that speaks to me in that way. I think of the, the Gadarene demoniac. And at the end, you know, he's, he is clothed and in his right mind. He's restored to a community. He's been raging in isolation among the tombs. And that's a very, very potent image, isn't it? He's been in effect preferring the dead to the living because that's a world where, you know, he can just say and do what he likes. And there he is, screaming and rattling his chains among the tombs. That's a pretty dramatic image of what's wrong with human beings, but the, you know, that's, that's it. Jesus restores him to community, to life, and life with, because life for a Christian is always life with. You mentioned earlier this third area of questioning or interrogation around our need for dependence, in particular dependence on those we've described as those with more prosaic skills and commitments. I think we've certainly seen that, haven't we? We really have. Can I push you a little bit more in terms of that question of dependence? You mentioned just now it's all right not to be in control, and you talked about the heart of faith is about living with. It strikes me that the narrative of personal autonomy, of the desire to be in control, is an is an overwhelming one in our society today, and yet it does often strike me that it runs counter to that to that landscape of Christian faith which says, don't trust me, trust God. What is it, do you think, about this pandemic that has really push the button of reminding us that we're not in control. And mm. where's the good news of faith kind of on the other side of that? Mm. Well, just uh, stepping back for a moment, I think part, part of the trouble historically is that, of course, people fell in love with the idea of autonomy because of a, a broad historical and cultural memory that there'd been a very long time when other people's will had been dictating what was good for me. And very naturally, people pushed back at that. But what if it's neither the tyranny of somebody else's will or the tyranny of mine? What if it's a, a genuine shared discovery, which is, you know, again, a, a mutual recognition of dignity and a mutual working with that? 
I think that's what I'd want to say about the autonomy question. It's not that we're trying to, in Christian theology, subordinate individuals to a collective. That's not it at all. But looking for what kind of active plural discernment can be reached. That's an ideal, and we don't always do it by any manner of means. But I think in connection particularly with this current pandemic, I think there are two things. One is we've we've had to recognize that we are indeed connected with the wider world, because if this pandemic is indeed something that has, as I say, jumped species from other parts of the animal kingdom, then you know we're reminded in the most painful way possible that we're not insulated from what goes wrong with the animal world. And epidemiologists have been warning about this for a couple of decades. They've noted that significant pandemics do indeed jump species. And the more irresponsible we are about caring for our, our environment, the more exploitative we are towards the animal world, the rest of the animal world, the more likely it is that we'll have these, these issues. It's not as if people have failed to notice that. So suddenly, we're again recognizing that we're plugged in at levels we don't fully understand or manage into the animal kingdom. We are animals, and there's, you know, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. We are animals. We are animated flesh. So there's that. But there's also, I think, the fact that epidemics don't respond very readily to what I call political bullying or political management. They cross boundaries. They don't stand around in queues holding their passports, waiting to be admitted. Crises, whether environmental or medical, just flood across the boundaries we create between our societies. And it's very significant, isn't it, that some of the deepest anxieties in the last decade or so in so many societies have been about the outsider coming in. We've almost fetishized our boundaries, our identities. And here's something which just casually breaks through that. As I say, you, you cannot halt this at customs. So both of those things prod at some of our assumptions about our humanity, that we're really essentially isolated from the animal kingdom, or that we can really manage our own territory in a perfectly secure, impregnable way. And those, those are big challenges. So to get through them or get past them, we do need, as we've been saying, another kind of imagination about what it is to be human. And, and yes, an imagination which is not panicked by the fact that we're not in control in every respect. But that's not to say we, we should idealize being passive in our environment. Far from it. But that sort of realistic, careful attentive, constructive action, which is discerned together, which is worked at responsibly and in a long-term perspective, you know, that's genuine, mature human action. What's illusory, and dangerously illusory, is the idea that somewhere there is you know, the magic button to press, which will secure our territory, secure our impregnability and invulnerability. It's not going to happen. So the question is, how do we live lovingly, and sensibly and hopefully as part of an interlocking world. And I wonder if that's also part of the living out of the good news, as we realise that our autonomy is more limited than we thought, as we pay attention to those who we are interlocked with. We mm. discover their gifts, we discover what yeah. we can receive, yeah. and we see it from a less mm. transactional perspective. I, I receive a gift of my refuse being collected not as a norm, but this is yeah. this is a gift, and and I recognise my dependence, yes. and that that is part of the the faith landscape. Hmm. Absolutely, yes, and I think that takes us to the question of how fundamental gratitude is in all this. 
I think the weekly clap for the NHS is one symptom of people suddenly realising, you know, it doesn't hurt to say thank you. In fact, it's part of our social bonding to be able to be grateful together and in some measure at least to reward those on whom we depend, at least by the assurance that we're noticing that we've received appreciatively what they give. A Eucharistic life, perhaps? You could well say. (laughs) Standing back a little bit and looking back at this more broadly, how does the overall task of theology, to ask a, a big question to finish with, how does the overall task of theology look different in the light of what we're living through? Perhaps you could give us a sense of some of the contours of what is changing about theology as a task. Hmm. At one level, I suppose, theology doesn't change. It goes on being, of its very essence, a reflection on the reality of the body of Christ and the new creation. You know, that's how I'd see the fundamental reality of theology, because that's what we're given, that's what we're invited into, and so that's what we've got to think about. That's the distinctive thing we've got to think about. So the question then becomes, what's happening to our experience of the body of Christ and the new creation in this new global situation? where we're discovering kinds of solidarity we hadn't expected, kinds of fear we hadn't fully explored, kinds of dependence that we're uncomfortable with, but are coming to terms with, where we're thinking again about, as I said earlier, the importance of bodily contact and communion. And of course, looking at what we can do in contexts like this online to create conversation, to create solidarity. And I'm thinking too of all those extraordinary fresh expressions of church that are happening online in ways that are making, I think, some quite new things possible and quite new levels of seriousness possible for some people. So that's the context in which I'd see it. I don't have any answers, but I think that's how we ought to to frame it, as it were, to say, if we want to know what's going to happen to theology, let's see what's happening to our experience of the body of Christ. And may I ask for, for you and for all of us listening to this, What is our attention to the experience of this within the body of Christ saying to you, if I may, about how you worship, pray and witness? I've certainly had to learn quite a lot about the intentionality of connecting digitally. By that, I mean, I think you're invited to a different kind of concentration, a different kind of presence. And although you know, while I'm here on screen, I'm, I might very well be tapping out my letters on the keyboard out of your out of your view. I'm not, I hasten to add. Um, you know, I, I just have to say, so, so how do I how do I become present more fully? Different sorts of questions from when I'm I'm in a church congregation, and I'm still wrestling with what all this is doing to my experience of the Eucharist and sacraments. I think, on the one hand, many people have discovered just how much it matters that the Eucharist is a real flesh and blood encounter, which arises out of a real community. But it's as if in this, well, what many people are experiencing experiencing as a fast from the Eucharist in this long period, we are perhaps learning how how to come together more deeply and fully as a community, almost in preparation for a deeper awareness of the Eucharist in due course. I think that's part of what I'm sensing. I know that when it'll be possible to celebrate again with the congregations that I most love and part of, it will be out of that long and varied experience of building deeper relationships. I I help out in a a local parish here quite regularly. And in the lockdown, we've had uh, a mass every Sunday. Sometimes I've 
officiated or preached at that. And what's intriguing is to see how the not very large congregation there has really come together, found ways of connecting in that online worship, but also in daily contact, because the parish now produces a daily newsletter, a daily meditation, a daily intercession and prayer cycle. And we're doing far more together and sharing our, to go back to a word I used earlier, our imagination as a congregation more deeply, I think, than, than we've done ever before. So when we are together again, physically, at the Lord's table, we'll be bringing quite a lot more. And perhaps that's a, a gift, certainly something I'm, I'm feeling rather excited about and rather grateful for. That's an encouraging place on which to end. Rowan Williams, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much for the, your welcome. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>